Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome to a history of Europe. Key battles. The Battle of Grunwald, also known as Tannenberg, 1410. Part 4 of 4. If you haven't already listened to parts 1 to 3, now might be a good time to check them out. But if you have already, or would like to continue anyway, let's go. Two main conflicts mark the beginning and end of the 14th century for the Teutonic Order. The first, which began in the first decade of the century, was the acquisition of West Prussia. This is a strategic territory, providing control of the delta of the river Vistula, and also acted as a land bridge for French, Burgundian and German crusaders to the areas further along the Baltic. The Polish kings and Polish church, however, regarded the takeover by the order as nothing less than theft, and yearned for its absorption into the Kingdom of Poland. The second conflict, which concluded at the very end of the century, was over Samogitia, a region in the northwest of the modern nation of Lithuania. The importance for the Teutonic Knights of this region was as a land bridge between Prussia and Livonia, and as the heart of pagan resistance, which needed to be tamed to complete the Christianization of the Baltic region. In 1398, Samogitia was yielded to the Teutonic Knights by King Jogaila of Poland in the Treaty of Salinverda in return for their support in expeditions against Moscow and the Tatars. It was not impossible for the political borders of the Baltic at this point to have stabilised, but the Poles and Lithuanians still harboured ambitions of taking control of the territories of the Teutonic Knights. And so, when in 1409 the independent-minded Samogitians rose once again in rebellion, a major conflict erupted once more. The Teutonic Knights had reasons to believe that Vitautas and Jogaida were secretly encouraging the rebels, but the cautious diplomat Grandmaster Konrad von Jungingen had passed away and his title passed to his brother Ulrich von Jungingen, who was of different character. Ulrich was young and rash, and seemed to believe that the order had lost sight of its original purpose, to fight pagans. He also inherited a situation of rising tensions between the order and the Kingdom of Poland, especially over disputed territory of Dobrin. The Grandmaster's demands that the Poles and Lithuanians cease providing aid to the Samogitian rebels provoked cries for wars in both nations. Despite the threat of a major war, Ulrich prepared for a pre-emptive strike. 
He forged an alliance with King Sigismund of Hungary, levied mercenaries in the Holy Roman Empire on the 6th of August, 1409, reoccupied Dublin from the Poles, effectively declaring war. That August, Jogaila and Vitautas produced a public manifesto that amounted to a frontal assault on the very legitimacy of the Teutonic Order. They claimed that the knights were not really interested in converting pagans, rather only in their own aggrandizement, at the expense of their neighbours. The Samogitians, they declared, were good Christians, who they had converted themselves, while the native Prussians, under the rule of the Teutonic knights, were still semi-pagan. From this point, writes Eric Christiansen in his book, the Northern Crusades, the character of the war changed. It was no longer a fight against the heathen, it was a war waged by Poland and Lithuania for the reconquest of disputed lands. Historians who are critical of the Teutonic Knights accuse them of following a so-called illusionist policy after 1386 and the conversion of Jogaila to Christianity and his ascent to the rule of Poland and Lithuania. The knights, they claim, only pretended that Lithuanians were not true Christians for the sake of keeping up the influx of crusaders from the West and gaining territories from Christian powers. But where it's Christiansen, quote, it should not be forgotten that all the combatants made use of illusion to gain their ends. In the case of Poland, it was the political illusion that their king had ultimate authority over all of the lands that his predecessors had alienated, and that the interests of justice and Christianity would best be served by the expansion of the Polish state. In the case of Lithuania, it was the illusion that Vitautas was concerned more for the souls than the territories of the Samogitians, and that he had not in the past cooperated with the order whenever it suited him. The real question was, which illusion had the strongest army? End quote. There was considerable pressure applied by the papacy to find a compromised peace, so that Christendom could stand united in its efforts to confront the Ottoman Turks who had recently overrun the Balkans and were starting to threaten Central Europe. Yet most West Europeans were too preoccupied with other matters to help negotiate a peace. The great schism of the Church, with one Pope in Avignon and a rival in Rome, was at its height. War broke out between the French and Burgundians, which occupied many families that had recently sent crusaders to Prussia. The ruler who decided to lead the peace efforts was King Wenceslas of Bohemia, remembered by Britons and Americans mainly for the Christmas carol, Good King Wenceslas. He brought the Grand Master and King Yogada together on the 4th of October 1409 to help negotiate a truce that would expire the year after, on St John's Day, 24th of June 1410. The agreement authorised Wenceslav to propose fair terms for a permanent peace settlement after hearing the arguments from all sides. Yet when next spring he announced his conclusions, the Poles and Lithuanians were not impressed. The core of the peace proposal was to confirm the status quo and the right of the order to retain all disputed regions, including Prussia. The Lithuanian complaints were ignored and the Poles told to abstain from providing any aid to Samogitian pagans. A more balanced peace proposal may have succeeded. 
Instead, when the Polish diplomats argued the treaty was unfair, Wenceslav lost his temper and threatened to make war on Poland himself. Jogaida prepared for war with the Knights, but must have been concerned about the possibility of a war on multiple fronts. But he judged correctly that King Wenceslav was bluffing, and he was also able to persuade King Sigismund of Hungary not to provide the support to the order which he had promised them. Of the two sides in the conflict, the order was on paper stronger and more experienced. The core were the Teutonic Knights, themselves who were heavily armoured and wore a white mantle with a black cross. They made up only a small percentage of the order's army at Tannenberg, not much more than 250 in total. The bulk of the Prussian knights who fought in battle lived on the order's lands, but were not actually members of the order. The rest of the army were comprised of townspeople and armoured peasants. A number of so-called guest crusaders also fought in the campaign. The majority were German speakers from all round the Holy Roman Empire, who fought under their own banners. Since the master of the Livonian branch of the order had concluded a separate truce with Vitautas and Grand Master Ulrich had to make do without the northern knights. And although King Sigismund of Hungary did not participate directly in the campaign, he did send 200 knights to support the order. And also Wenceslas of Bohemia allowed the Grand Master to hire a large number of warriors from his kingdom. The armies of Poland and Lithuania, for their part, had little in common with each other. The main strength of the Polish army was its cavalry, which was composed of well-trained knights on some of the finest mounts in Europe. Their infantry, however, was undisciplined and poorly equipped, with only the most rudimentary weaponry and armour. The Lithuanian army was more Asiatic than European, since it had spent the last centuries fighting the Tatars across western Russia. They relied upon lightly armed and armoured cavalry that was highly mobile and fought the enemy with swift raids and ambushes. It also contained a large contingent of Tatar cavalry, who served as mercenaries, were armed with bows and lassoes, and mounted on small steppe ponies. A few of Yogaida's and Vitautas' commanders had served together in earlier campaigns, but their army was composed of troops so diverse that maintaining cohesion would be difficult. The total size of both armies is, like for most medieval battles, disputed. It is generally agreed that the Poles and Lithuanians enjoyed a numerical advantage of perhaps three to two. On the other hand, the order had the advantage of better equipment and organisation. The Grunwald campaign can be said to have begun when the October truce expired on St John's Day, 24th of June, 1410, although the Poles and Lithuanians had already beforehand engaged in a number of diversionary tactics. These had served successfully to confuse the leaders of the Teutonic Order about from where the main invasion would be launched. King Jogaila left Krakow on the 26th of June with his army and arranged to meet up with the Lithuanian army at Czerwinsk on the river Vistula, some 50 miles from the Prussian frontier. The site was chosen as a safe and well-protected point to cross the river, but a large pontoon bridge had to be constructed and it took the Poles three days to make the crossing. On Thursday, 3rd of July, the combined Polish-Lithuanian army started their advance northwards towards Prussia. When they reached the ill-defined frontier on about the 7th of July, Grandmaster Ulrich had still not concentrated his army, as he was still unclear about the exact whereabouts and intentions of the enemy. He eventually realised that the Allied army was heading almost exactly due north for a direct attack on Marienburg, the fortress headquarters of the Teutonic Order. 
he hastily led his army southwards to confront the enemy and was able to block their advance to the river Jeva, a tributary of the Vistula. Yogaira dared not force a crossing of the river's only good ford in the face of a strongly entrenched army. Instead, he bypassed the river eastwards towards its headwaters. Although the countryside was no longer as densely forested as it had once been, parts of the ancient wilderness still remained, as well as numerous local lakes and streams. While the land was completely unknown to most of the invaders, the Teutonic Knights were familiar with the mass of winding paths that connected the tiny villages. Many had used the area as a hunting ground for recreation. By all accounts, the Allied army wreaked havoc as it went, looting, murdering and desecrating churches. The worst atrocities reported were committed by the Tatar mercenaries, who freely raped and pillaged. Polish knights began to complain to Yogaila, who ordered the steppe horsemen to avoid such behaviour in the future. Local villagers fled into fortified refuges, or deeper into the forest. Although many of the local inhabitants spoke Polish, they were loyal to the Teutonic Order, and certainly did not greet the invaders as liberators. The Teutonic Knights marched parallel to the army of the enemy, shadowing every movement. The river soon turned sharply north, and the Knights decided to cross and deploy astride the road to Marienburg. Their aim was to force the enemy into a battle on the ground of their choosing. Yogaila gave orders for a swift march eastward and north around the Grand Master's fortified position, quietly abandoning his camp without the enemy realising. Meanwhile, he sent an envoy to the knights to try and negotiate a peaceful settlement. Quite likely, this was a deceptive manoeuvre, but then again, it may have been a genuine effort to reach a compromise rather than risk an all-out confrontation in unfamiliar territory against an enemy army who were proving very difficult to outmanoeuvre. Either way, whatever terms were offered, they were refused outright by the Grand Master and his council. When Ulrich saw the police camp empty, he assumed the king was withdrawing. He ordered his men to set out in pursuit, knowing that there was nothing easier to destroy than an army in retreat. However, when the scouts saw that the enemy were moving northeast in good formation, the Grand Master had to reconsider his plans. If his men just continued following, they would not be able to prevent them destroying numerous villages. Ulrich therefore changed the direction of his advance to get ahead of the enemy forces and once more block the roads north. The Polish-Lithuanian army was now only five miles away to the south, resting in a town named Gilgenberg, which lies on a narrow neck of land between two lakes. That evening, a Lithuanian contingent stormed the fortress of Gilgenberg. According to the Polish chronicler Dudegosz, they were provoked into attack by the garrison, but the German chronicler Posilge had a very different view. He wrote, quote, They, the Polish army, conquered the town and burnt it down, and they slew the young and the old, and they and their heathen allies committed unspeakable murders, and they dispersed the churches and cut off the breasts of young girls and women and horribly tortured them and let them be led away into servitude. They also did many shameful things with the sacraments. Whatever they came across in the churches, they tore to pieces with their hands and trod it underfoot, and this they did in jest. End quote. Until now, Ulrich had acted prudently, but according to Pesoga, these atrocities sent the Grandmaster into a furious rage and made him determined to crush the invaders. 
Quote, Their great blasphemies and insults went to the hearts of the Grand Master, the whole order, and to the knights and men-at-arms among the guests. And they rode with righteous indignation against the king to Tannenberg, and came upon the king without warning, having come in great haste fifteen miles by daybreak on the 15th of July. End quote. Having surprised the Allied army, however, Ulrich hesitated and failed to take the initiative. Basilga continues, quote, If they had attacked the king immediately, they would have won honour and booty. But that, unfortunately, did not happen. They wanted to call him out to fight chivalrously with them. The marshal sent the king two unsheathed swords with their heralds. Unquote. Most likely the offer of a single combat with the king was not to be taken literally, just a part of chivalric ceremony. Either way, for the knights, they wasted their advantage. Ulrich let his weary soldiers stand in battle order, without food or drink, until the enemy was ready. His plan was to wait for the Poles to attack his defensive position, after which he would launch a counter-attack. But Jogaida was in no rush to attack, spending all morning in fervent prayer in his own private chapel in his camp. Perhaps this was out of devotion, or perhaps a deliberate tactic, making the knights wait three hours as the hot summer sun rose ever higher. Battle of Grunwald, or Tannenberg, of July 15th, 1410, is still being refought by historians today. Writes William Urban, quote, Although the outline of the combat is very clear, Polish and German historians are not in agreement about the various actions which occurred during the battle, or even where the fighting took place on the broad field, end quote. What is agreed upon is the broad outline of the army formations. The visiting crusaders were stationed on the left, opposite the Lithuanians, while the Teutonic knights held the centre and right positions, opposite the Poles and their mercenaries. And the events of the battle went something like as follows. Grandmaster Ulrich von Jungen, after waiting for an attack from the Poles for three hours, lost his patience and attempted to provoke an attack with his field artillery. His army uncovered their cannons and began to fire. The wet weather had, however, dampened the gunpowder, so they were not able to cause any damage. Nevertheless, the action succeeded in bringing out a response from Vitautas, who, observing temporary disorder in the ranks of the knights, ordered his men to charge forward. As the two sides met, wrote the Polish chronicler Judegosz, quote, There was such a noise of breaking spears and the clash of metal swords that the roar was heard by people a good few miles away, as if a huge boulder was tumbling down. End quote. The Poles, meanwhile, advanced slowly and in good order, with spears and lances at the ready. The battle raged for some time, perhaps an hour, and with no side gaining a clear advantage. Then the Lithuanian flank, for some reason, started to give ground, and then retreated at full speed. A contingent of Teutonic knights and crusaders pursued them, believing that victory was near. Whether this was a genuine rout or a feigned retreat is debated by historians still today. The chronicler Judegosz suggests the former, 
but there is suspicion that this was invented to make sounds more glorious to deeds of the Polish army, who stood fast and overcame the enemy in spite of the flight of their allies. One argument against it being a deliberate feigned retreat is that contingent of Czech mercenaries working for the Lithuanians panicked and began to retreat in disarray. Also, the later repulse by the Lithuanians seems to have taken place some time after their retreat. On the other hand, a recently discovered letter written in 1413 by a well-informed Teutonic noble or mercenary captain suggests that the knights had indeed fallen into a trap sprung by the Polish knights waiting in the flanks. Either way, it appears that many of the guest crusaders became distracted and dispersed in the pursuit of looting the Allied baggage train. As the Lithuanians retreated, Grandmaster Ulrich led a charge to directly attack the Polish king and his entourage. One knight made his way through to the royal standard bearer, who was forced to drop his flag. The joy of the knights was short-lived, as another pole seized the standard and held it aloft again. Another Teutonic knight managed to fight his way to the king himself, but Jogaila is said to have couched his lance and attacked back, and wounded a knight. At this point, Vitautas, who appears to have been dashing everywhere around the battlefield, led a group of light cavalry against the rear ranks of the order. It is this point that is captured by Jan Mateko in his famous painting of the battle, which you can see on the podcast's Facebook site. In the centre of the picture stands Vitautas, while Yogaira commands from a hill in the rear. Also depicted is the Grand Master. Ulrich von Jungingen fought courageously and tried to break through the enemy ranks, but his men were becoming increasingly outnumbered by the Polish knights and Lithuanian cavalry combined. In the heat of the battle, the Grand Master was killed by a lance thrust through his neck, and the tide of the battle decisively turned. Under pressure and without their leader, the Teutonic knights began to give way and to make their escape back to the camp near Grunwald village. According to the chronicler Persirge, hundreds of knights were cut down as they attempted to flee. Many more died when they reached the apparent safety of their wagons, because the camp followers turned against their masters and joined in with the slaughter. The knights attempted to build a circle of defence with their wagons, but the enemy broke through and caused yet more carnage. More knights are said to have died there than on the battlefield. The casualty rate among the guest crusaders was also very high. By seven in the evening, after a ten-hour long grueling battle, the result was clear. A victory for King Yogaira and Duke Vitautas, an utter devastation for the Teutonic Knights. In one day, nearly half of the entire order had been wiped out and many more taken prisoner. It had been an exceptionally hard-fought battle, and losses were also very heavy for the Poles and Lithuanians, also in the thousands. Even though victorious, they were too exhausted to continue their march across Prussia. As well as the need to rest, they were delayed by staying to search the battlefield for booty, weapons, money, jewellery and clothing from the deceased. They also needed time to care for the wounded and fallen comrades. After three days, Jogaira ordered his men to continue the journey towards Marienburg. 
If he could take advantage of the misfortune of his enemy and make himself master of that great fortress, he would be well placed to conquer the rest of Prussia. Already the power of the Teutonic Order seemed to be collapsing like a house of cards. Secular knights, burghers and even German bishops came to the Polish king, pledging their loyalty if their privileges were granted. The garrisons of several Prussian towns and castles, without sufficient means to defend the walls, felt they had no choice but to surrender to the Poles. The fortunes of the Teutonic Order may have sunk even further were it not for the actions of one of the few leading knights who had survived the massacre, Heinrich von Plauen. Forty-six years of age at the time of the Battle of Grunwald, Heinrich had come to Prussia originally as a crusader, and then decided to take the vows of obedience and join the order. In the Grunwald campaign, he had been assigned the command of the castle of Schwetz, an important observation point on the banks of the river Vistula, and so avoided the main battle. When he learned of the magnitude of the defeat at Grunwald and the deaths of all but one or two of the leading knights on the battlefield, Heinrich ordered his 3,000 troops to Marienburg to garrison the fortress before the Polish army could arrive. Jogaila must have hoped that Marienburg would capitulate quickly, as had many smaller fortifications, but its delay in continuing his march after the battle gave Heinrich von Plauen time to prepare the defences and ensure the castle was well supplied with food and water. Heinrich also sent envoys to King Sigismund of Hungary and to King Wenceslav of Bohemia, both of whom agreed to send relief troops. The Polish army set siege to Marienburg, but failed to make any headway against the massive stone walls, 8.2 metres high and 2.1 metres thick. After two months, with an outbreak of dysentery among the besiegers, Jogaida reluctantly decided to abandon the siege and return home. He was concerned an enemy relief army would arrive, and also many of his troops were eager to return home for autumn harvesting. As soon as the Polish army returned to their country, their gains in Prussia started melting away. Coordinated by Heinrich von Plauen, the knights from Livonia joined those of the main Teutonic order to secure northern Prussia. With their support, the captured towns began to throw out their new Polish garrisons. Jogaida worked to recruit a new army with the aim of retaining his gains in southern Prussia. He was encouraged by the news that the rulers, who had pledged to support the order against the Poles, were too preoccupied with the election of a new Holy Roman Emperor to send help, an election which was eventually won by Sigismund of Hungary. Jogaila and Vitautas organised raids into Prussian territories to put pressure on the Teutonic Knights. Contemporary records are full of reports of attacks on communities, of atrocities against women and children, and the murder of priests. The suffering within the Order's territories was certainly real, but perhaps exaggerated in some reports by the Knights so to be used as propaganda and encourage assistance from the West. Finally, Sigismund sent a contingent of troops to help the Knights, and King Wenceslav also provided financial support. Heinrich von Plauen led an invasion of Dubrin against the Poles, and although of limited effect, it was enough to compel Jogaila to negotiate a truce which became known as the Treaty of Thorn. At Thorn, the Order demonstrated how its close ties with the leading nobility of Christendom could help in its diplomatic efforts. Despite the scale of their defeat at Tannenberg, they were allowed to keep all land they had held before 1409 except the province of Samogitia.
The saving of the order by Heinrich von Plauen had been an outstanding achievement, and the concessions made at Thorn remarkably lenient. The order did, however, have to pay a massive indemnity, which practically bankrupted it. Silver crosses and other church furnishings had to be melted down to raise a sum of £850,000, ten times the average income of the King of England. With their military might decimated, territories devastated and their coffers emptied, the Teutonic Order nevertheless managed to survive. Yet although the blow inflicted upon the Order at Tannenberg was not immediately fatal, the need to maintain a large number of mercenaries ready to face the aggression of the Poles and Lithuanians eroded the financial resources that had sustained the war machine through the decades. In addition, the Order's loss of prestige and credibility after Tannenberg meant that from then on, few foreign volunteers came to join the main crusade. The Teutonic Knights suffered a more decisive setback in 1454, when the cities of Danzig, or Gdansk, Elbing and Thorn renounced their allegiance to the Order and asked to be taken under the protection of the Polish King. This triggered a 13-year Polish Teutonic War, which culminated in the partition of the Teutonic Domains in 1466. Western Prussia became an autonomous province within the Kingdom of Poland, known by historians as Royal Prussia, while in East Prussia the knights were allowed to remain, but under Polish suzerainty. The disconsolate Grand Master in Rags and Tears was compelled to swear an oath of fealty to King Casimir IV of Poland. His capital was moved to Königsberg, and only the Order's Livonian territory to the north remained independent. The Order still had a role to play in the eastern Baltic, particularly in Livonia, but the years of crusading conquest were at an end. These events left a bitter legacy in the minds of the local German-speaking population, and three centuries later this so-called Partition of Prussia was used as justification for the Partition of Poland. Then, in the early 1860s, the influential writer Heinrich von Trichke argued for German unification under leadership of the kings of Prussia, successors of Frederick the Great, based in Berlin. To von Trichke, the Teutonic Knights had been an important bulwark against the savage and cruel Slavonic East. The Poles, Lithuanians and Russians, on the other hand, saw their predecessors as good and noble and depicted the Teutonic Order as servants of the devil. In Eisenstein's film, Alexander Nevsky of 1938, for example, the knights are seen throwing Russian babies into the flames. In the meantime, German nationalist sentiment built on the Order's mythology, twisting yet further the events at Tannenberg as some sort of racial struggle between Germans and Slavs. As describes Stephen Turnbull in his book, Tannenberg 1410, quote, In August 1914, the Germans destroyed General Samsonov's Russian army, killing some 70,000 Russian soldiers and capturing at least that number. Initially, the battle was described as taking place in the vicinity of ortelberg gilgenberg until a certain Lieutenant Colonel Hoffman pointed out the propaganda potential of the name of a tiny village located within the vast combat zone. This new Battle of Tannenberg was soon being represented as some sort of historic retribution for the defeat of 1410. 
If by 1914 the story of Tenenberg had already been grossly distorted, the ideological clash of Nazism and Stalinism stripped it of any last vestige of reality. As the myth of Tenenberg was bent to the purpose of the respective propaganda machines. End quote. Since the 1960s, German and Russian historians have finally started to take a less partisan view of events, and archaeology is beginning to shed light on the battlefield, giving promise that problems left by literary sources may now be more fully resolved. Writes William Urban in his book on the Teutonic Knights. Most importantly, since the fall of communism, German and Polish historians have come to respect each other sufficiently to give real attention to one another's ideas. There is indeed reason to hope that someday we may come to a better and more general agreement as to what happened at Tannenberg and what it really signified. I'd just like to add that I'd love to hear from you. Any feedback or comments is really, really welcome. Uh, I'd like to give particular attention to the Facebook page where I put an extra images or links or information about the podcasts, about the battles that I cover. Um, the same information is given, if you prefer, on the blog, which is www.historyeurope.net. Uh, there's also a Twitter account at History Europe KB, uh, where I tell of new podcasts, and I'd like to use a bit more, but uh, I'd well worth following, I'd say. And also, you can write to me directly uh, to Carl at historyeurope.net. Thank you very much for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles. I hope you can join me next time, two weeks time for the Battle of Agincourt and the Hundred Years' War. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.